1: Welcome to the Forever Fab Podcast, the podcast dedicated to fashion, the art of living well, and all things beauty. I'm your host, Dr. Shirley Medair, the founder of Holistic Plastic Surgery Philosophy, and your purveyor of this definitive source of living a beautiful life. This week's episode is dedicated to destigmatization. The name of this episode is called Cultivating Mental Wellness During Uncertain Times, this is my interview with Dr. Margaret Said. So for the past few podcast episodes, I have opened with the same few statements, and I will repeat them again today, as these words remain relevant, salient, and I think important. We remain in exceptional and precautionary times. We must remain dedicated and vigilant. And... We must also continue to recover and to heal. This week's topic will explore mental health and wellness, and my guest and expert is Dr. Margaret Saeed. Dr. Margaret Saeed is a psychiatrist and neurologist based in New York City. She was raised in Brooklyn by Haitian parents and later trained at New York University and Johns Hopkins University. She represents two the number 2.0% of black psychiatrists in the United States, and is a highly sought-after expert in her field. Dr. Saeed has been featured in Self Magazine, Healthline, NBC News, New York Post, CBS News, Good Housekeeping, among other top publications and respected media outlets. She joins us today via StreamYard to discuss her inspirations, and her mission to help make the world a happier place. Welcome, Dr. Sayeed. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you. You make my life
1: now, so <laughs> because of course every guest on the Forever Fab podcast is fab. Obviously, I, I mean clearly. I appreciate that. Thank you. Our guests are highly and ruthlessly curated. <laughs> so you made the cut, sister. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> So shall we get started into the inquisition? I hope it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You are the daughter of immigrant parents from Haiti, your father being a taxi driver or having been a taxi driver, and your mother having been a home attendant. How did being from an immigrant household affect your upbringing and your values, and how did that upbringing and those values serve you during your training? Thank
0: you for starting there. That, That really means a lot to me. Um, My parents had a lot to do with sort of um, shaping my work ethic, my values. My parents had been here. I'm one of seven kids, and I'm the second to last. Um, Almost lucky seven. Almost. Well, I, yeah. Um, So the first four were born in Haiti and my parents were here for about two years when Mm -hmm. I was born. So growing up, there was this profound appreciation of everything that America is because it's not just a given. You weren't like landed on it, born into it, a coincidence of your birth to be born in America. It's something that at that time my parents really sought after, worked hard for, came here with, you know, that that story of literally with nothing and then building from there. So everything from opportunities to education, was so appreciated, and that was even though I was born here, it was just taught and preached like pretty much on a daily basis how fortunate we are to have be in America, the the opportunities we have, the schooling. Both my parents are elementary school educated because of the fact that you know, as you know, especially during those times, literally my parents were my dad was born in the 30s and my mom in the early 40s in Haiti. Um, where education past a certain point was not a given. and my mother would tell me all the time that she has a really good memory because there was no pen and paper or pencil and paper in her school. And yes. so everything was like, rem- you know, um, re- verbal right as far as like storytelling and everything that they learned. Um, and even food talking about how nights that they went to bed hungry. So mm. so, so just the deep, appreciation and not taking everything for granted. And the fact that America, as flawed as it is, um, and it is, um, is still that land of opportunity.
1: Yeah.
0: Although, you know, getting older, you see not so much. There isn't this golden ladder towards the top. But I'm glad that when I was growing up, that's what I thought. I yeah. thought work hard, grab your bootstraps, and just go for it. Yeah. Um, I do not recall my father ever taking any sort of vacation. My mother working and having seven kids, you know, needless to to say. And so I never felt like, oh no, I have to work or ungrateful, mm-hmm. and every dollar was meaningful. Um, and that was really that was really helpful because. My journey, medical school and residency, it is grueling. And one okay, of the no. first things you learn is um, you don't matter. Right. Or you're not that special. <laughs> exactly. If you're tired, interesting, that doesn't matter. Your feet yeah. hurt, you're bored, you're whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I grew up in a household where it was kind of like that doesn't matter. Still, what has to be done has to be done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is such a profound history. And I, it completely resonates with me, and I'm so happy that you expressed it as you did. Because, as you know, as a Haitian woman myself, um, I completely understand that education is of quintessential importance in our culture. So I remember growing up, and to your point, I would say, "Oh, well, you know, I I, I just want to get my hair done today," and my mother would say, "Well." that doesn't matter. Oh, I want to be able to do this, you know, today. Well, none of that matters because you might be cute and you might be friendly or you might be nice, but none of that matters because what truly matters is that which no one can take away from you. And that's in here. Right. Absolutely. So how was the the importance of education expressed in your family? I will say that
0: my, my parents being overwhelmed. And it's funny that that story of, like, the first couple kids are, like, really nurtured, had no freedoms. Oh, yeah, Everything they did was, was a picture of it was taken. They were followed around. And then my parents kind of, by the time they got to me and my younger sister, it was kind of like, you know, somewhat parented ourselves (laughs) learning by example or not the same level of of hovering yes so i didn't necessarily get the um did you do your homework and what did you Mm -hmm. do spelling test and oh you only got a 98 on this test (laughs) exactly but there was this sense of like don't be a problem yes don't become an issue don't become another worry another headache we have enough going on here and I know I don't want to talk to your principal. Handle yeah. it. Right. handle it yourself. Exactly. So, and that idea of handle it yourself was it was interesting because I I remember like you know remember school notes from the old days, and literally if I bought my mom or my dad who were just, you know, functionally literate and said, I I have to, you know, there's something I've got going on at school, sign at the bottom of this page. They would do it because they love this sense of handle it. Right. Um, And and implicit trust. trust. Yes. Yes. Use your common sense and appreciate. Uh, And uh, I was trusted with that. And it was assumed that I was going to make common sense decisions, Mm -hmm. use my wits, use my brains. And I was, you know, intelligent in school and did well in school and well behaved because it was like there was no room for anything else. Um, And so that sense of, oh, you've got this. Yes. "This, um, This gift, this talent. And so... What are you going to do with it? And that was like, you know, early on this question of like, oh, you've got something going
1: on here. What are you going to
0: make of it? And don't squander yeah. it.
1: Yeah. And also probably a sense of don't get it twisted. So don't screw this up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because we do have a lot to be grateful for and we have all these opportunities. So make the best of them.
0: The gratitude was endless and daily. Um yeah. My My father would, you know, like I said, on a daily basis, preach about how appreciative he was of being in America and having the opportunity to be in America and raise his children.
1: Yeah, in in America. Now that observation of daily gratitude has that? Have you brought that along with you by any chance? Do you keep a gratitude journal? I don't
0: actively keep a, a, or don't always not consistently at times mm-hmm. I have at times I have not yeah. but I will say that on a very regular basis that I am extremely mindful of what my mind is doing
1: mm-hmm. And
0: when you know when you're not actively engaged in some sort of cognitive task and many of the things we do whether it's washing dishes or showering or brushing your teeth or when you're on the treadmill do you really know where your mind is I on a try my hardest to always know what my mind is doing and if it's not doing something constructive and affirming I try to pull it away from that so I'm trying to list what is good about my life what's mm-hmm. good about world, the people that I appreciate, the opportunities that I have, the talents that I have, um, on it on you know, going body part by body part. Yes. I do, I do try and remain, and I am in in appreciation because doing those mental activities have taught me that like my all of my life story is like, huh, this worked out pretty well. Everything from I'm glad I was born in 1975. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I wasn't bound Born that much sooner because of what I would have been born into Mm -hmm. sexism, not having the same opportunities. I'm glad I also wasn't born that much later because I think being young in this era is challenging, um, extremely difficult. And as much as like growing older, you have feelings about it, it's just like, oh, I wouldn't want to go back and I wouldn't want to be young in this era, social media and all that. Yeah. Um, Even being one, being like, you know, having so many older siblings. I had constant conversation and older siblings wanting to teach me to read and, you know, like the the my verbal skills because there was so much chatter around me. Born mm-hmm. into a bilingual home, which also that yes. extra stimulation for my brain. I even appreciate interestingly my mother and father not knowing, oh, you've you've got to take the kids to you know, hovering over us and you've got to take your kids to the library, all that. I have no children's books. Ah. What I read growing up was my two older sisters were in college when I was, or they were about 10 years older, 10 and 11 years older than I am. And so when they were starting college and they went to CUNY schools, because my Mm -hmm. father was not at that time, not trying to hear dormitory and campus. (laughs) That was wild of an idea. Okay. You're not going away. You're not stepping foot out of this house, much less out of the state. <laughs> exactly. I did get to go, but that was, again, when they were like, worn out. They were worn yeah. down. Yeah. That. Yeah. And so that was also the era of, like, the explosion of Black literature and the attention. I mean, those writers had been there for the intention, and people... Selling it on on the streets when you went to Manhattan or whatever. Selling Maya Angelou, W. E. B. Du Bois, yes. and I, I'm kidding you not when I say I had read most of Maya Angelou, whatever was published, Tony Morrison, um, and W. E. B. Du Bois by the time I was eight or nine years old. Wow! Because I wanted to read, and those were the only books that were there. Yeah, and, and so it and and I think I hope that I wasn't even understanding <laughs> <laughs> when I go back and I'm like, who let me read this? You yeah. Know, where, like some of it is adult content. But it I was clearly. improving the vocabulary and sentence mm-hmm. structure. And so all of those things I have a great appreciation for the coincidences that came together to make my life.
1: Well you clearly have an exceptional brain. Mm-hmm. And also um you handled it. <laughs> you handled everything. Now, now interesting that you said that your parents expected you to just handle it yourself. Now I want to ask you about that handling things yourself and managing whatever issues you came up with and you're having your parents expect you to just take care of it because they already had too much on their plate. But in our culture again the Haitian culture um, handling it yourself whenever you do have an issue let's take you know a mental issue and let's hone in on that. Um Mental health is not typically a subject that is discussed openly in the Haitian community, and I suspect in lots of cultures. So, how is it that having had that background and 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 the culture and those values that you chose your field?
0: Well, so interesting that you ask. Originally, <laughs> originally when leaving medical school, originally I chose general surgery. Ah! <laughs> It, it it's true. It's
1: true.
0: Okay, <laughs> and, I, and I did three years of general surgery first, coming out of medical school because that was probably like that was like what you should do at that time in the early two thousands. It was thought where that was where the prestige was, that was where the money was. I, so, <laughs> go do that, yeah. right? And so I was following along with. I did. I did love the OR. Um, yeah, but that probably more you know, steered my decision-making in that direction and away from psychiatry was, was you know, what is that? Is that even medicine? Mm-hmm. And for like the worried well and not like, you know, real, that's not what yeah. a real doctor does. But surgery was not a good fit for me. Like I said, I love the OR, but it was a super toxic environment residency, even though it wasn't that long ago, it was still considered like our job is to mentally break you.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then we'll be back up like right
0: before you finish residency. Right. We've got this. Yeah. Yeah. During the mental breaking, it was kind of like, I don't care. I just want to do what I want to do. And I just want to be happy. Yeah. I, I, the prestige I was Q3, which means every third night on. Mm. And so you're you're so exhausted. You're so worn down that it, it doesn't matter. So I was like, I'm just going to do what I love. And at that time, I loved Oprah and self-help and my yeah. and working with um, women. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, surgery broke me and I'm, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do what I want. And so that's when I went into psychiatry. And absolutely- my mother behaved like I joined the circus. <laughs> it was really like, uh, and 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 I had gotten into my residency at Johns Hopkins, and I'm like, yeah. I'm sorry to shame you by being a physician at Johns Hopkins. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just the way it's going to be, and literally, like, not joking. Um, my mother shortly after I started, um, psych my like I was. During my residency, she had a surgery, and I was communicating with the doctor on her behalf, like getting information and asking questions. Yes. he she said, okay, but when you commute, I told him you were at Johns Hopkins, but I told him you were still a surgeon at that time. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I just don't think that'll come up, but okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, it, but, but, you know, ultimately it was about, you know, for me, just being happy. Yeah. Doing what I wanted to do. Because the prestige meant nothing. When you're Q three, there are no dinner parties. That's where correct. You're not telling people that you're a surgeon. Right. With you finishing your lunch in the elevator ride. If <laughs> you even get one. Exactly, and right. it, it really drove home the point of like there there is something really beautiful about medicine in general, yeah. but within it, you really have to find your your passion and your niche and something that works for you.
1: Yes. Well, I have to, I again, this your stories resonate deeply with me. Um, I remember being told, and I can't remember who told me, but I remember choosing uh, plastic surgery ultimately, but I had to go through general surgery. And I remember choosing plastic surgery and I remember someone saying, oh, well, that's like, that's like, you know, glorified beautician, right? I was like, <laughs> no, that's not quite it. And, um, and nonetheless, yes, doing ultimately what makes you happy. And I need to be surrounded by and involved with and, and whatever, beautiful. I, I need beauty in my life. And so that's what I resonated towards, but getting back to the experience of, being on the journey to your happiness. Sometimes we have to go through the fire. <laughs> we sometimes <laughs> have to go through hell to be able to truly understand and the difference between what that was and where you are happy. And like you, um, I experienced quite a number of challenging situations during both surgical uh, trainings because I did five years of general surgery thinking, Okay, I've got um, a couple of things, although they work for me personally, they go against me in this paradigm of medical training. I'm a woman and I'm a woman of color. Those are two strikes, you know, in that uh, world. So I've got to do as much as I can to be even better than Mm -hmm. average. So, yes, I completed five years of general surgery and then two years of plastic surgery on top of that. And because I wanted to do a lot more cosmetics, I then did a one year fellowship on top of that. So the challenges, the difficulties, the psychological Jedi mind tricks of constantly being told you're not good enough and why you're here and to your point, we will break you, has, has just been rampant throughout training for women and particularly for women of color. So during those three years, what was your greatest challenge Uh, that you faced and uh, and how did you overcome it as much
0: Sexism and racism as there was in medicine and in 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 surgery Which I think is like a couple a decade or two behind every other specialty and it um, persists I I I will say that it was hard to know what was what because everyone was I will say the males white males white females it was and if you if you know there was a short resident and it was like let's make fun of that and if it was you know to anything y- you you were attacked and and it would literally be like a mean sort of a we will make fun of your appearance we will treat you bad we will you know there was undermine you yeah one um, doctor during my residency handed me a pair of scissors and said, "You should go make your white coat into an apron. I think you should be washing dishes."
1: Yeah. And,
0: and that, that was regular. Um, there was a surgical attending, and it wasn't just me, but I think it was me more often. He would he, It was in the sick you. Surgical ICU, and uh, so it was enclosed. So there was an entrance and an exit, and he would say, "Get out of my ICU," but what that meant is you were on timeout, and literally you had to go stand in a corner. Wow! And you didn't know if it was going to be five minutes or two or three hours, so you better not move, or or be slumping when he opened the doors to come and find you. Yeah, it was literally so mentally brutal at that time. Grey's Anatomy was Mm -hmm. coming out and it was really popular. And everyone was like, Are you watching that? Isn't that? Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, They can't put what I'm going through on television. No. (laughs) They. There will be a lot of legal issues. Exactly, or it would be definitely rated RR. They, they can't, yeah. and, and so no, I don't want to watch any medical show. And to this no. day, I don't watch any medical show, I don't either, because there's something traumatizing about it, or they make it so light and fluffy, yeah. Um, from the tailored scrubs to the yeah. whatever, and that they, they the true experience of it is so or. And again, I'm thinking that residency has changed, uh, although I'm a little removed from it or, or surgery or whatever. But at the time, it was like, absolutely not. I don't want to watch more of it when yeah. I grow home. Of
1: course. Yeah. 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 To this day, I don't watch anything medical either. Yeah. And so when people ask me or even the shows about, you know, Botched or The, uh, the Swan or anything plastic surgery, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that's that's Those, so interesting that that's true for you too. Like not one thing. Not, not, one.
0: One, not one. Not one thing.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not interested. So um, let's, let's shift gears a little bit, although related to the isms that you and I clearly have both experienced and perhaps still so. But from my experience, so many emotions um, return to the surface reminiscent of some of the things that I experienced during all of my training. And and those emotions resurfaced during the Black Lives Matter protest. Mm-hmm. And I didn't and I didn't expect everything that I was reliving and experiencing and seeing to affect me so deeply. But um, it did. So only two percent of psychiatrists are black did any emotions come up for you during the Black Lives Matter um, movement that resonate with this disparity in psychiatry and perhaps even in plastic surgery, 0.2% or less? Did did anything come up for you during that movement? Surely. Um,
0: what, What first struck me, like when it was happening, and also at that time there was like a series of, horrific videos of Black bodies being brutalized and it just felt like every morning that I had to roll over and check my phone or even in the middle of the night to check what was the latest video of a person being needlessly brutalized and and put in that helpless situation. And lots of emotions, one of them being heartbreak. Because like I said, Growing up, and people sometimes think that that black people are, you know, might not be patriotic. But be, being chi- a child of immigrants, especially yeah. a child of immigrants from the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, absolutely I would have gotten a, you know, a tattoo of a flag on my forehead had it had my parents like (laughs) they let you they would have disowned me but but I live near the Brooklyn Bridge and whenever I jog or walk there's a big flag there and I always look up and really think about it and think about my parents so thinking about how our love black people immigrants this love for this country is so unrequited love yeah. And it's so still believing, oh, we could do anything. And if we mind our business and follow the laws and pay our taxes, it should be OK. And it's like, nope, it won't be OK. Yeah. Um, you could be in your backyard. You could be sleeping in your bed. You could like, you know, get a parking ticket and then the interaction go bad. And so so- for a jog. Yeah. And that heartbreak of like we're never safe. You're, you're mm. never okay. Um, you've never made it. If you're still wrapped in black skin, there is a perpetual danger that follows you. And as much as you love this country and it is so invested in the American dream and all that, this country doesn't love you. And that fact never ceases to shock me. Yeah. It never, not one of those videos, it never became like, oh, okay, another one. Mm. Um, it it There is this like, <gasps> You know, perpetual horror, and you can't stop being shocked by how like everything that America claims to be, and then it's like, that's a lie. Oh, wait, but it doesn't apply to you. Get out mm. of line for this American dream. Yeah. That that is one thing. And then also just really feeling, um, in in my scope of practice, I've practiced yeah. a lot of different areas like I've worked in eating disorders and in addiction and most recently my private practice was near Wall Street yes. and it's really you know it's Wall Street so you know mostly educated well-healed very high achieving hardworking high hard on themselves group of people and that was like basically my patient population and so some of my patients were, Black women and black women would seek me out because they were looking for another, you know, a comfortable, safe, familiar place. And if they had to talk about racial conflict, they wanted it to feel a little bit more organic yeah. or feel understood.
1: And aligned.
0: Yeah. And and I, what I noticed was that I didn't notice in inpatient medicine because everything's an emergency if you're in the hospital. Yeah. You yes. really see more of a full 360 of what a yeah. person's going through in their life. Um, and I would, I, I noticed, even though all my patients were professionals and, and graduate degrees, the black women were, and I say black women only because I've never really had an ongoing talk therapy relationship with a black man um or or not that many men in general but not a black man yeah and, um the black women would not take up space they would I would give my cell phone number my email let me know if you're having any issues Da da, da. and it would be for a non-minority patient oh okay just texting you because I just want to give you the heads up I'll be needing that prescription in three weeks and it's like Okay, just get back to me when it's, and then my black female patients, even though they were CEO of whatever, it would be, I didn't want to bother you. I Mm. read weeks ago, there would be this tiptoeing in the world Mm. that I would notice that it would, whether it be like an appointment or I didn't want to cancel or I had to cancel or just this sheepishness even though again demographic wise it would be like people who were like, movers and shakers when it really came down for them to at require something even if they were paying for a service yeah. whatever it was there was this like bowed back chin down approach that was subtle but definitely there and that i was like oh this is where we're learning it
1: so this playing small, this sense of contraction and um, this meekness or this, this quietness or not wanting to take up space, do you think this is a result of years of microaggressions and macroaggressions? Is this something that we've now internalized that maybe we shouldn't be here?
0: Absolutely. A thousand percent. I, um, how could we not? Right. Yeah. How could we not? It's insidious. It's everywhere. It's anywhere. Um, I recently, not, not recently, it was maybe a couple of years ago, but, um, I'll tell you two incidents. There was, I was, the hospital I was working at more recently, not now, but maybe a year or two ago. Um, they would have, you know, in common spaces. They would have vendors come and people selling arts and crafts, and jewelry, and pillows, and stuff like that. And scarves, especially during the holidays. And I remember I'm I'm approaching the table now. I'm in the hospital. I'm wearing my white coat. I'm wearing my badge. Yeah. And I'm approaching the table to look at some jewelry, and I instinctively took my hands out of my pockets oh. as a forty year old woman in my white coat. And it was something I was like, oh, that just happened. And I don't remember anyone ever teaching me when you go to a CVS, make sure your hands are in your not in your pockets. But that is part of what I do. And I caught myself doing. It. I didn't even know the other times I've been in drugstores if I was mindful of it. But I yeah. know that I do it. Mm. Um, and, and but that was the one time that it really stuck out at me. And I was like, I've been programmed to not have my hands in my pocket when I approach items for sale on a table. Another wow. time, again, a job I'm not at anymore for hiring me. They're not even thinking of like negotiating the sticker price or the the you know the in the the pay the salary that they were saying this is what we're offering yeah. you when i got to the interview not only did i not negotiate i kid you not that they said to me that they were like okay we're gonna pay you this and it was twenty thousand dollars less oh. than the salary and i negotiated for them to only give me ten thousand dollars less for wow. for what i walked through the door being promised and at the time I left feeling proud that I had argued for only half yeah. of that. And, yeah. and to this day, like, you know, my heart rate increases when I think about it. Because yeah. that, that's so, again, be grateful, you know, keep it humble. Don't complain. Don't be yeah. the angry black woman. Keep your head down and you're yeah. a guest in here. Yeah, um, This is not your home. Yeah. Is so pervasive. And I, you know have these examples because I've seen it in myself in things that were not conscious choices and things that were like this is what my body is doing without me even my 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 hands just came out of my pocket yeah without me making that decision the other thing in particular with black women is i mean the thing on the very very surface if we're just speaking huge simple categories and oversimplifying things the things that separate a black person and a white person if if all else being equal same outfits you don't know their life story is their appearance right yes, clearly. that is the the black skin the hair the nose the lips and so that is the division that's that's why like other efforts to enslave irish people or other in, you know j- prisoners or whatever it is that was tried, it was like, yeah, but you can escape and blend in, but also probably beating you might be a little bit harder because yeah. I see your humanity as opposed to your your kinky hair and your brown skin and, and whatever else other features, that's the dividing line. But for women, our appearance is, whether it's social or how we're wired, is of a greater priority or something that like we're, we're more tuned into and concerned more about. And it's those exact features that are vilified. Like that's the narrative. That there's something built into your features. Because what else is different about us? I mean, now there's a big chasm because of so many things. But initially, yeah. just again, everything else stripped away. What else is it? Except my hair texture and my nose and my skin this color of my skin that is separating us. So those are, that is the perforation and the breaking point. And then we're sent into the world to be like, oh, everything's about your appearance, by the way. And look, but your appearance is off brand and Mm. no white Cinderella, all of, you know, everything beautiful, everything good, all the good dolls, everything, especially when I was growing up, everything is Caucasian. Your appearance is off-brand. And so I think that, again, you absorb it, it seeps into your pores, seeps into your pores, and then you live it. Yeah, That's how you show up at a job interview or when you're moving through the hallways of
1: corporate or the hospital or academia. And I have two comments um, on the back of what you just said before I go on to the next question. Um, The wiring is persistent. I remember not too long ago being in the operating room and In advance, they set your, you know, your gloves beside your gown, etc. And the gloves that were given to me were too large. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm not this size. I'm that size. Can you please get me the proper size gloves? By the way, I am the surgeon. I need properly fitting gloves to do my job. And the surgeon who was assisting me, assisting me, um, granted, was older and more experienced, but nonetheless there in a secondary role to assist me after I asked him to help me. And his comment was you know, why are you asking, you know, for good don't be so exigent. Don't don't ask for so much. I mean, why just work with the gloves that you have? I was like, What? <laughs> wow. Thank goodness I was able to just get rid of that comment and sort of stay in my lane and in my, my, my Zen area, because that was disturbing.
0: That's horrendous. And I just want to add from my years of surgery and for the audience that operating in the wrong size gloves is <laughs> it's not a thing. It's, it's not it's a thing. It, 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 you know, increases the chances of infection of your fingers, not being as nimble or it's, it's not like. You know, you wanted this color and not that color. It's a big deal for somebody to try to tell you that it's a small
1: deal. Of course. And the other, and the other comment I wanted to make was about um, appearances. Now, throughout my life, I have experimented with lots of different things with my hair, with my makeup. Not wearing makeup, I don't wear makeup. Blah, 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 and I have been accused of, or, oh, what are you trying to be? You're not trying to be yourself. And my response has always been, it doesn't matter that I color my hair blonde and obviously not fully blonde. It doesn't matter that I straighten it and do Japanese straightener and hair. It doesn't matter if I do braids, if I wear extensions because what what they truly see, regardless of the accoutrements or the accessories, what they truly see is this. And then depending on how I speak, that adds another layer on top of it. Mm -hmm. Depending on my body language or my behavior, that adds yet another layer of their perception that will be used to judge me Good, bad, and different. So, yes, everything that you're saying persists. My next question is related to your practice. So, in your current scope of practice, given the multitude of events, the microaggressions, the macroaggressions, the just the blatant madness around the world and what we've experienced globally this past several months to a year, essentially, what kinds of mental health issues have come up for your patients?
0: So um, that's a good question. This has been a a really just a wild, (laughs) radical time that we're all still processing. And I've told lots of my patients, look, this is my first pandemic too. Yeah. Um, But for for patients that live alone, the isolation, Mm -hmm. the loneliness, the shock of it all, when we were all told in March, go home, buy as much food and then lock the door. Yeah. Um, that presented problems to people with compulsive issues. Like if Mm. patients with eating disorders, which I've worked in eating disorders. So a lot of my patients have like, you know, whether it's binge eating or not eating um, patients who had a borderline problem, a toxic, but, you know, still doing okay in life relationship with alcohol. Mm. It was, well, why shouldn't I give in to every vice craving desire why not and and it seemed in march and you know first couple months that was a valid question yeah. <laughs> that's a good question why shouldn't you have vodka for breakfast and i think in, in, unfortunately in social media every you know there were jokes about like you can have vodka, you know, just <laughs> pour it into yeah. your coffee mug. Yeah. Um, I, I even saw a thing where, you know, pour your coffee into your, your vodka in your coffee mug and then tape a, a tea bag string um, outside of it so that, and it was this joke about there are no rules anymore. Mm. And so for that, people who were trying to hold on to the rules or who, Having to be somewhere for eight, 10 hours a day, put a cap on their behaviors. And I, people would describe that it just felt like you know their their desires and the things that they don't want to be doing and their darkest deepest inclination someone was feeding them to those inclinations that they Mm. were feeding them to the wolves that there was like the lifeline of like okay I can't do this because I got to be up at this and I have this meeting tomorrow and I can't like binge at my lunch with my people you know watching me and now I'm working feet away from my fridge or I don't have to socialize and all those things. So a lot of people felt that people who are married or in complicated relationships or complicated living situations, family, even roommates. That of course intensified everything because everybody was like, you know, what's going on? Yeah. Um, and and uh, <clears throat> so a lot of people were also having the issue of, well, how do I know if I'm depressed? Mm-hmm. When- the world is so sad and then try and, and how can you call me anxious? What, what lunatic wouldn't be anxious, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but trying to really differentiate and tease that apart and educate that like, you know, the illness of depression and anxiety is when it's following you around all the time and you're experiencing biological changes like you're so tired but still can't sleep or you need 18 hours of sleep or you've lost your appetite or you can't stop eating. That's biology that it's hard to argue with that I would say, okay, if you watch the news for an hour and then you're just stressed for the time afterwards, that's one thing. But if you have this pervasive, I'm making a sandwich. Why am I sad and anxious now? Yeah. Um, that and so really educating and teasing apart for a patient the difference between reacting and uh, an illness of depression that either talk therapy or medication can be helpful with was yeah. was, was big for me.
1: Um, I know for sure that in the pat uh, in the first few months of the pandemic, I went through it. Uh, It was almost as if I were living through a fugue state. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was frustrated that as a medical professional, I couldn't fully grasp what was going on and why was it taking us so long in the medical community to figure this pandemic out and how it works and why don't we have anything yet? You know, my mind was all over the place. Um, Thankfully, (laughs) maybe it was my (laughs) Haitian background that was just like, okay, okay, you know, Let's go, snap out of it. This is not serving you and it's not serving anyone. So get to step mm-hmm. in and, and figure it out. Um, did anything come up uh, for you personally during those first few months? Or were you so busy with the inundation of you know, patients going through what they were going through that you didn't have time to really feel out what you were experiencing?
0: Well, I would say initially my top reaction was shock. Was just like, wait, what is happening? Yeah. Like every morning, wake yeah. up, like, Oh, that wasn't a dream. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. But I must say that I have, you know, just keeping in touch with a lot of supportive people around me. And also, I feel like what I do in many ways is a blessing because mm. it's like the way a personal trainer has to be in shape. Yes, Um, And though a personal trainer is probably going to be in good shape because of what they do and because of the education they're giving to their patients. I must say that for me, like I didn't like fall all the way in because I had to show up and be there for patients, for other people. And really, really connecting with the importance of what I did Mm -hmm. and, and being a lifeline and, you know, being that if it's my job to catch you, I yeah. have to make sure my arms are okay. Absolutely. And then all the the discussion about here's what you should do. You still should have a bedtime, okay? Yeah. You still should be eating meals and drinking water. And M Ms is not dinner. <laughs> and and all and get some movement. And you know try to go outside and try to Facetime and connect with people and go outside. You know get some sun all of that education that I was doing on a regular basis was seeping into me and I was hearing it and that's why I know that how you talk to yourself is the most important thing because that really kept me anchored the the fact that all day for hours a day I was telling people you've got to sleep turn off the Netflix okay you tried to be productive and where's your desk and what did you have for breakfast? That was
1: really constructive and helpful for me. Please speak to the repercussions of um, the repercussions, primarily on mental health, related to the all of the disruptions that we've experienced in the past several months. Whether it's a disruption in family life and and being able to see family, you know, and feel family and hug family, um, career. Uh, essentially, being you know unemployed for months, um, uh, socialization and lack of socialization, and also on the social and social media and the doom scrolling. And if not, if we're not going to watch television because it's too depressing, let me go to social media and and feel crappy about that. So, speak to some of those repercussions that you've heard. You know, your clients speak to. So, probably the truest
0: thing I could say is that we don't know yet right? This is so unprecedented. Just like, you know, I don't want to bring up anything scary, but what does COVID do to the body a year
1: after? Yeah, we don't know. know,
0: Any answer? So there's so much that is unknown. And so the... Psychological effects of what we're going through, and I even tried to, at different points, look for any data that psychologists were gathering during mm-hmm. the last pandemic um, in 1918, and I couldn't find much. And, which makes sense. That's not really what we're, you know the where the game was at at the time. So I will say we don't know, right? Yeah. But as I watch people process this, I will say that it is particularly hard for young people. Mm. I I am appreciative. Like I said, I'm appreciative of where I am because being 20 with your life not formed, whereas my life is somewhat, you know, the clay is hardening, and I, I've chosen a field, and yes. I, like, my toes are pointed in a certain direction. Yeah, to to be more open ended in a blank canvas in yeah. you know the chaos that unfolded in 2020, it was really scary for people.
1: Yeah. people
0: having their education so interrupted. I have a couple students who went back home because why shouldn't I right? and write home and then they get stuck there. Yeah. And so they're in, let's say they travel back from a New York City based school to China, Yeah, 12 hour difference. And mm-hmm. so they're getting up at 3am to, to go to class um, or they have class at 1am. Mm-hmm. they like, so, and they're not having the social, a mm-hmm. lot of students who are artists or musicians or whatever, like they call it, I'm continuing my education, but not really, because not really. Yeah. of course you can't. Um, and, and people who were really into their physics or research, like you can't go into your labs. So I'd say for young people, it was really hard. For a mm-hmm. lot of people who were already struggling, again, that existential, those questions of like, why shouldn't I? any x you know there's it's a it's a becomes a valid question um i haven't because of the population i work with i haven't known that many people who who i mean their jobs are different because they're working virtually but most of my patients were able to hold on to their job and hold on to their paycheck because they were sort of tech finance you know that sort of a job that that and. And it's not talked about because we're talking about the unemployment, but it is a certain section of population of that was vulnerable and it was hit really hard. Lots of people are sitting pretty, getting promotions, doing OK. And and I must say that was like career wise, that was a lot of, of my patients. But also a lot of people struggled with, again, bad behaviors like because yeah. going to the gym was helpful or meeting my friend or my personal trainer or that you know, that spin class. And all of those were removed. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like, it's all on you. There is no external right. motivation right. whatsoever for you to brush your teeth. yeah. <laughs> to turn off the television for you to set your alarm clock. And yeah. so a lot of people struggle with that. Like, what do yeah. I do with those 24 hours without those milestones and prompts to keep me grounded? But yeah. I think a lot of people Eventually, got like, okay, this is going to be happening. Yes. I need to adjust and That's make right. it sustainable for you yeah. with, yeah. with good habits.
1: Yeah. It really becomes an interesting study of, um, the source of resilience, whether it's internal, external, a combination, um, if, if you don't sort of have it within, can you uh, get it from an outside source? It, it's, it's very interesting. And to your point, we, we really don't know yet.
0: And I, I happen to like
1: the blessing and curse
0: of um, I happen to be an extreme morning person. Oh, I I took my bedtime pretty seriously. Yeah. Um, and so that sort of like set me on a decent path, Mm -hmm. and. you know, like everyone else or a lot of other people got my Peloton, got a good Peloton, like virtual partner to motivate yeah. me and keep me on track, who was very yeah. motivated. I didn't need like dead weight. Yeah. Um, we were trying to motivate each other. Yeah. I someone to drag me along. Yeah, And it ended up being okay. And again, taking okay. very seriously that I had to be there for other people.
1: That's right. Well, using the metaphor that you used not too uh, long ago. Yeah, your arms are clearly very strong.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: Resilience is
0: a good word that you just mentioned. That was the take-home point of my upbringing.
1: Yes, indeed. You've been listening to part one of the Forever Fab podcast. Stay tuned and come back to this channel next week for part two.
0: You've just listened to part one of Forever Fab podcast. Please
1: stay tuned for part two. Coming up next...